morning. I hope that everyone is, is doing well. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, and we will begin reading in verse 8 in just a moment. Last week, we dove headfirst into one of the most highly debated and most confusing theological discussions in the history of the church. That's my opinion, and that is the second coming of Christ, some eschatology. Now, we didn't unpack various views of of eschatology. We didn't need to do any of that. We just need to focus on what, what Peter was telling us. There are different views that are amongst us, and they are fine, unless you are a preterist, and then we need to talk otherwise. However, what we need to see more than anything, is that as the church, we must be certain that Christ will come again. Period. In chapter 2, we saw false teachers. And Peter confronts these false teachers. He exposed them as being de- uh, deceptive and arrogant and immorable, immoral, excuse me, insatiable for sin. That they are empty wells and dry mists ready for destruction. In chapter 3 last week, we started out talking about these scoffers. And again, what do scoffers do? They scoff. They deny. They doubt. They downplay. They downplay and doubt what we see here is the second coming of Christ. And Peter wants us to be reminded, first of all, that these scoffers will come and they're going to scoff at the second coming of Christ. They're going to want to cause doubt and questions of the legitimacy of Christ's second coming. Because if God has never acted in history, this is their argument, then why would God act sovereignly in the end to bring his people back and come back again as he said he would? And as Peter says in verse 5, they had deliberately, conveniently forgotten the significance of how God has always sovereignly acted throughout history and is still sovereignly acting throughout history from the very beginning of creation, that God created all the world and the universe by his word and has sustained his creation by his word. God has sovereignly, by his word, judged the world by the Noahic flood. This is the argument of of Peter. And by his word, verse 7, he will bring about the destruction and judgment of the world, the ungodly, and this time not with water, but by fire. All in all, this was about the church being certain in what God's word says clearly. That Christ will come back. Our passage this morning deals with the same issue, but it also deals with some of the the three biggest topics, I think, of all time. Get it? Time. Because that's the first one. Time. Time. Time being one, right? We're always asking about time. What is time? How does time exist? What does it do? What does it, how do we know that our clocks are actually right and the world really is spinning this way? These, these things, right? Salvation, one of the biggest questions of all time. Salvation, how can man be saved, be reconciled to God? And lastly, the end of the world. Three topics that physicists and all kinds of scientists, theologians, and weirdos have been researching and debating and postulating for centuries. These three huge topics. Let's look at them now. Verse 8. And we'll read them together. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise at some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. So did you catch the three huge topics, one in each verse? Time, salvation, and the end of the world? Peter is making here in these three verses the the continual, the uh, irrefutable argument of why we still have to wait and that the waiting will not be indefinite. The waiting will end. The question in in verse 4 by the scoffers once again was, where is the promise of his coming? And Peter answers the question biblically and historically through the way that God has always been acting in history. But now he comes to answering the question, why? Why do we still wait? Why is God waiting so long? Why are Christians having to wait for the long, so long for the promise of the coming of Christ? And if God has acted within history and will come again, then why is he waiting? Why is God waiting? You know, sometimes the question, why God, is a question that many people ask. Maybe even a question that we might have asked in some of the situations that maybe we have walked through. And if those questions, why God, are not answered sufficiently, meaning not answered biblically, then what can happen is disbelief, unbelief, and doubt. And it gives a foothold for scoffers and for false teachers to find their way in like a breach in the dam. Those accusations such as why can sound something like this. What can a good God possibly be waiting for? If something so good is in store, if something so good is coming for his people, then why wait when there is so much suffering and so much pain and so much sin? There's a tension. There's a tension that we, we sense and we feel living in this fallen world of, between God's sovereign purposes and for his will and evil and suffering and the effects of the fallen world that just exist all around us and even in our own lives and families. And I'm certainly not going to stand up here and tell you that I have not ever had the thoughts of in great catastrophe or scandal or tragedy or when I see on the news or hear from a friend or see it somewhere else, grave wickedness of man upon another that I've not thought to myself, why, God? Why wait? Why continue to allow such rampant wickedness? Don't you care about your name? Maybe you have too. maybe even good Christians throughout the centuries who for no reason other than wicked and evil people who are just wicked and evil do evil things against them. And they face torturous deaths asking this very same question. Maybe Tyndall before he was being tied to his stake and before the fires laid it going, hey God, if there's ever a time for you to come back and smote these wicked people. Now's the time. But Peter, in the beginning of verse 8, he says, do not look this fact. Do not look, overlook this one fact. So brothers and sisters, we come this morning not wanting to overlook this one fact. The truth of God's word handling some of the most serious questions of life. And that is, why 
Jesus has not come back yet. This passage, though short, three verses, is packed with theological depth to do one thing. To give Christians confidence in their sovereign God that he will do everything according to his will for his glory and for our joy. Because it is right doctrine that applies to the question why and answers it in the sufficient way that we need to hear. These verses do not explain every little situation of suffering and why, but it changes our posture Not one of doubt, but one of faith. Not one of fear, but one of trust and belief. It changes our posture to love and not doubt. Life is scary. Life is very much scary. And and, and just as a a child, when you take them to the beach the first time, and of course they kind of can comprehend the waves and the sand and and the the water that's rushing upon the the sand, it's scary to them. The beach is is scary to them, and they don't want to go into the water. And it doesn't matter how many of those plastic, Chinese-made, life-saving devices that you strap on them, the water wings, the... Uh, puddle jumpers and the and the, the floaties all around their legs and whatever it, it doesn't matter they're still going to be scared and what changes that what changes that is the loving father or a loving mother who takes their son or daughter by the hand and they reach out and they look into their eyes and they grasp their hand and they say you're going to be okay i got this I won't let anything happen to you. And to gently lead them into the waves, not pick them up and throw them in. As sometimes I have done. And because my dad did it to me. Love and fatherly authority changes things. And it builds our faith and confidence to trust in him. And that's what God's word is doing this morning. In these three verses, in these three huge topics, we're going to see the reasons why we still wait and why Christians have been waiting for centuries. In verse 8, we are given a divine perspective. In verse 9, we are given a picture of divine patience. And in verse 10, a divine promise. How many of you have had questions that one day you would like to ask God in jest, Christians will say to each other, we'll, we'll ask, we'll, we'll say to one another, you know, if I get the chance, I just, you know, not in doubt, not in like saying that it's not good, but, but, but God, I just want to ask you, why gnats? I mean, yeah, listen, we get it. It's a plague, right? Hello, Egypt, eat this. Well, what did we do? Here in Statesboro, I mean, God, really, they're terrible here. Or what about this? How about mosquitoes? What? Maybe something else. I got a a fly that flies around with that smells good. I don't know. Those are good questions, especially for us around here. Flies, mosquitoes, and other things. But of course, there are some other questions maybe we would like to ask God, like that big question that 1 Peter chapter 3 asks, that brings up, God, why? Do we have to wait? Why do you delay in, in coming to take your church home? And after last week's passage, I, I personally was left with the sense of, come, Lord Jesus. I want you to come. And, and, and that is certainly a, a very correct, as we said last week, a very correct and right desire for all Christians to have and to pray for as we already have but we first must understand, to understand the why he has not come. And the reason why is first we have to understand is that there is a divine perspective of time. The, tempta- the temptation and questioning and, and doubting Christ's return, but God's word says in verse 8 is this. Do not overlook this one fact. Pretty true, and God's word says this is a fact. Beloved, that the 
that with the one, the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Now, now isn't that an interesting fact? That's something that we would, we need to understand when answering this, this question, why? It's almost as he's saying, as a matter of fact, beloved, your concept of, of timing is not God's perspective of timing at all. Your clock is not synchronized with his clock. And again, just kind of inserting this here. Remember, this is Peter, Peter's favorite term to address the church, beloved. We talked about that last week. And he says, beloved, this is a fact. And the fact is, with the Lord, the Lord is timeless. And the Lord is infinite. And you are not. He is timeless and he is infinite and you are not. Let me explain this as as best as my moronic mind can do. First of all, Peter is not making up some new fact here. He's not making up something new, but rather as God's word does for us, he draws back from God's word. He's drawing from the Psalms. In fact, it's Psalm 90, a psalm written by, by, by Moses. Did you know there were psalms written by Moses? That's a fact in itself. Amazing. And listen to what Moses says in Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. All generations. That's something of time, right? All generations. Not just my generation or previous generation, but all generations. Verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth. So before time even began, before creation were brought forth, or, or ever you have formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. What is, what is Moses doing here? What is he praying He's contrasting for us the 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 eternity of God with the temporal human beings, with temporal human beings, right? We are temporal. God is eternal. Man returns to dust. God is everlasting to everlasting. That says something. It says that our days are short, Our days are weak. Our days are like the dust, but not God's. God does not weaken. He does not diminish, nor does he decay over time, or is because he is what? As Moses says, he is from everlasting to everlasting. So the mark of time in many ways, is irrelevant to God because he is, transcends time. He is infinite. And he is not bound by space because he is omnipresent. And very much unlike us, we are completely bound to time and space. When we feel how limited we are because we cannot be in two places at once. We can't even be in two rooms at the same time. I have no idea what's happening behind that door. Nothing. There could be a kajillion cockroaches crawling around. Is kajillion a word? We'll find out as our national debt keeps going. (laughs) Probably not. Don't know. We feel limited because we can't be in these two places. And we are not only bound by space, but we are bound by time. In fact, we are slaves to time, aren't we? We all have clocks, clocks all around us, clocks on my iPad here, clock on my watch, clock everywhere. There are a thousand clocks in here between us. There's clocks everywhere. We're, we're slaves to them with every passing day. Because seconds, they add up to minutes. And minutes add up to hours. And hours add up to 
days, come on, y'all been to school, come on, days add up to weeks, weeks add up to months, months add up to years, years add up to decades, decades add up to centuries. And that's where I want to stop. Because I don't, what's next? Centuries add up to a millennium, millennium adds up to Christ's return, right? How about that? <laughs> we chronologically organize just about everything. Of course, we're thankful for our phones. If you have an, an iPhone, it chronologizes all, our, all of our photos now by years, and that's amazing. And I can see how old I am and how old I'm getting and my children, how old they're getting. Our lives are bound by space and by time. And we organize everything according to it. And everything is affected by those two things, but not the Lord. God created time, and though he himself is not bound to it. I like what theologian Herman Babnick says here. He says, we are human, and he is the Lord our God. Between him and us, there seems to be no such kinship or communion as would enable us to, his, to, to name him truthfully. However little we know of God, even the faintest notion implies that he is a being who is infinitely exalted above every creature. And though we have our perspective of time, of the here and, and the now, and understand somewhat of the past and what we kind of hope to inspect of the future, we are bound to it in every single way. But what Babnik is saying, and I think what Peter is saying, is that we must be very careful not to project our view of time upon God. Because his perspective of time is far different and greater than ours. Like Peter says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Let me illustrate this just a little bit further. When little children are waiting at their homes for their, their grandparents to visit, they get excited. They get excited, and, and they're eagerly waiting, and sometimes they can be impatient. They, they'll, they'll go and they'll, they'll stare out the window, or they'll, they'll play out on the front yard, and, but really they're constantly looking up, waiting for the car to pull up. They'll still at the window waiting and because they're waiting for when they get there. And they'll ask, hey, when are they going to get there again? When are they going to get there? They're going to be here at 3. They said they're going to be here at 3. And so the hours pass and the anticipation continues to build until that, that, that time comes. Finally, 3 o'clock comes, and they're still staring. They're still looking at the road. They're waiting. And then just even five minutes late, the question comes to the parents, right? Where are they? Where, where, why aren't they here yet? Call them. See if they're okay. See if Grandpa got lost again. Are you sure they're even coming at all? And of course, as parents, the adults, we're not worried. We're not, or, or we don't even doubt it, even if they're just a few minutes late or, or even just a half hour late like children will do. And the reason why parents or adults are not anxious or, or upset or, or worried is very simple. The perspective of time for adults is way different than the perspective of time for children. It's more mature. Now, God is not late in the second coming. Nothing has held him up. Grandpa has not got lost. Nothing has slowed him down as the illustration might imply. But what Peter is showing us here is that how vastly different our perspective on time is than God's. Very much like children to adults. And this is why we can be impatient. And this is why we can question and say, why, why God? Or even doubt the Lord's timing. So no wonder Moses in his prayer in Psalm 98, he ends it like this in verse 12. 
He says, so teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. How many of us have that kind of perspective where we would genuinely pray this way? You see, this is meant to put us in our place, isn't it? Again, as a, as a very finite people, bound by time, bound by space and sin and the fallenness of our world, we are finite and we are to learn this very one fact, right? Not to project our, our view of time upon God. This is to give us a divine perspective of how God seems time. And when we have this divine perspective, it puts things in perspective for us, doesn't it? To learn not to wait like the children at the window, but to wait like adults as, as Moses prays. That God would establish our work and we continue to be faithful and obedient no matter what afflicts us. And no matter what evils come upon us or what evils we see within this world. It's a perspective of trust. It's a perspective that gives faithfulness and obedience because God is working all things out according to his glory. And for when our joy, that's not just a tagline, it's not just a saying, it's not just a trademark, because it helps us make sense when we're tempted to ask why. The divine perspective of time. However, in verse 8, as he tells us this one fact, that God is infinite and timeless and that he transcends all of time and space, and we clearly see, and we don't want to be presumptuous then that, and be accusatory toward God, but rather we want to trust and have faith. However, there still must be a reason why he hasn't come back. Yet even after so much time, 2,000 years or so, so much time has passed. I mean, just 30 years after Jesus' ascension, here's scoffers already scoffing. It's been 30 years. He ain't coming. It's like the kid, right? It's been five minutes. That ain't coming. You lied to me. Scoffers are going to scoff. He's delayed which means none of this is true. Look what he says in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some would count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now I know, I'm just going to say it, I know that this is one of those verses, like 1 Timothy 2, 4, in John 3.16, that makes some of you Calvinists apprehensive. And we quickly want to explain what Peter is really saying. But take a breath. This is God's word. And we believe that this is God's word just as authoritative and inspired and inerrant and infallible as Romans 8.28 and 29. John 15.16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. It's just, as, it's just as inspired and inerrant as John 15, 16, or all of Ephesians 1, or even 1 Peter chapter 1, when Peter calls the church the elect. Now we'll get to what all this means in just a minute, but first I want us to see this about verse 9, is that God is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some like to accuse him. And why? 
Why is God not slow to fulfill his promise? Well, number one, we already seen. Because God's perspective of time is not, our, is not on our time. So who are we to judge him that he's being slow? We're the limited ones. We're the finite ones. We don't know what's going on outside there. And we want to accuse God? That would be arrogant. We, that would be for us to assume something about God. That's arrogant. And God is not slow or late or dilly-dallying around or delayed, but will in his time fulfill the promise of his son's return. But verse 9 answers the question, why? And in this answering question, why, we are, we are again seeing something about the character of God, the nature of God, like we did in verse 8. In verse 8, right, remember? Infinite, timeless, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. But in verse 9, we see something of God's character and that is he is patient toward you. He is patient toward you so that sinners would come to him in repentance. So why hasn't Christ come back yet? Because there are people being saved. Meaning, God is patient. And unlike us, we are impatient. The argument of scoffers then is completely turned around. Like in Romans 2.4, Paul says, Or do you not presume on the riches of, the, of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This attribute of God, his divine patience and forbearance, brothers and sisters, is not just in 2 Peter chapter 3 but it is all over the Bible. We read at the very beginning of our gathering from Joel chapter 2, and in verses 12 and 13, he says, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. He is slow to anger. He is slow to anger. This describes the Lord all over the scripture. That cannot be denied. It's, he is slow to anger. And that in his steadfast love, what is he doing? It is abounding in wanting his people to return to him and to repent of their sin and turn to him. Brothers and sisters, think for just a moment of God's patience toward you. Think for just a moment of God's patience toward you. And the very reason he did not come back before you became a Christian is patience. His love. So that you would repent of sin and follow Christ. Now, do not think that this verse is to be the banner of people who want to exalt man's freedom and their autonomy. Because on the contrary, what we see here is God's sovereignty and his love being worked together to save his people and to bring them to repentance. And as we wait... And as we pray for the return of Christ, let us remember that even in these last days, the Lord is still drawing people to himself for salvation according to his will. Why? Because he's patient and loving and not wishing that any should perish in eternal death, but all should reach repentance, eternal life. We should not be scared of this verse or others that are like it. Because in context, what Peter is showing us is God's character of love and God's patience with sinners through his eternal perspective. Now, one of the options I know that a lot of people have in understanding what Peter's saying here is that they'll say that any in this verse means everyone. 
without exception. But does that fit with other parts of the Bible? That God has sovereignly decreed all over the Bible. We see that God has sovereignly decreed that only some will be saved. The elect will certainly be saved. That he has predestined before the foundation of the world. Are they in contradiction then? And the answer to that question is no. So here's how I would answer the question and what's being said here. What we see here is the difference between God's decreed will and God's desired will. And in God's desired will is for all men to be saved. And that no one would perish but should reach repentance. However, he has not decreed nor has he ordained that all will be saved. The Bible is clear on that reality, isn't it? Reality is clear on that, that not everyone is saved without exception. Because if that is true, then God really is not really God because not all people are being saved. The desired will of God is sort of in the same ways, the way that God desires that man would not murder one another. God's desired will is sort of in the same ways that, that man would not murder one another. Murder is evil. It's a willful destruction of God's image bearer, meaning of God himself, the image of God. It's against God's law. It's against the, uh, but in, excuse me, but in the fallen world, ever since Genesis chapter 4, humanity has murderously killed one another for centuries and unfortunately still murders one another. And yet, we know that it is God's will, desired will, that man should not murder one another, for it is in his law. Now, this may be hard to understand and, and grasp, but maybe that's the whole point. We're finite. He's infinite. We're not just describing another human being. As hard as that would be, I mean, think how hard that would be. Come up here and try to describe Anthony to everybody. Boy, we would get, we would have a good time. Anthony would. But attempting to describe the depths of the heart of God and God's will and God's sovereign decree. And what verse 9 is showing us without a doubt is the deep love of God that we would not perish. And isn't that why he sent his son for the glory of God? That Jesus would perish on our behalf so that we could come in faith and repentance. Do not get lost amidst the trees here and miss what you are intended to see. And I like what, what Tom Schreiner comment, commenting on this verse. He says, he says, we should not retreat to God's decree, to, to, to God's decreed will to nullify and negate what the text says. Nor should we use this verse to cancel out God's ordained will. Better to live with the tension and the mystery of the text than to swallow it up in a philosoph philosophical system that pretends to understand all of God's ways. God's patience and his love are not illusions, but neither do they remove his sovereignty. This passage, brothers and sisters, is not meant to entrench us in our philosophical systems of Arminianism or, or to withdraw from this verse because of our Calvinism. But it is meant to draw us in to the heart and the character of God that thankfully, Thankfully, he is still saving people. And he's not slow, or is he delayed in his coming, but rather he is patient. He is patient, and, and I believe simultaneously we can believe that it is his desired will that none would perish, but also believe that without fail, he will save his elect. 
And in time, they will come to him by faith and repentance. He's God. We are not. And thankfully, right? He's patient. Lastly, certainly not the, the least. Some of y'all been waiting for verse 10. We once again see the overarching theme within 2 Peter, again to humble us, verse 10 is the divine promise. Now, when we think of promises within the Bible, generally I would say that most of us go toward the good promises. We want the promise of Christ's incarnation. We want to read about the the promise of the the Holy Spirit, the divine promise that the Lord will will always be with his people, that that he will be their God and and they will be my people. Uh, One of those promises being in Isaiah 42, verse 6. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, the light for the nations. Verse 7, to open the eyes that are the blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and the prisons of those who sit in darkness. Now, some of y'all who drink a lot of coffee, that verse would fit on your coffee cup. And you'd like to have that on your coffee cup. That's a good verse. That's good. And certainly the Lord has preserved his faithful remnant within the Old Testament. He has kept them. And then certainly we see in Christ, he has fulfilled the promise of Isaiah 42, 7, to open the eyes of the blind and and to set the prisoners free. And then ultimately we see the fulfillment in Christ's return when his people will be completely free from sin and death. That's a good promise. For those who are in Christ, we're patiently waiting and enduring hardship for that fulfillment. But 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 is also a promise that is a part of the great promise of Christ's return. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Oh, this doesn't sound like the other ones. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be, will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be The day of the Lord, he says. What an important theme throughout Scripture, right? 17 times in the Old Testament, four times in the New Testament, and they all have the same consistent meaning to them, mean the day of judgment when Christ comes again. And that day, as he says there in verse 10, again, will come. Will come. So, so verse 10 is, in, that, in those two words, is, is screaming to you something very loud. It's screaming to you. It's screaming to me. It's screaming to the church all over the world and even to the lost that, that though Christ has not returned yet, And some of y'all think that it's slow. And some of you think that he is delayed. And that even though God is being patient and God is being kind and he's saving his people, we should not presume to believe that these last days are just indefinite and we can just do whatever we want. They're not. As Christians, every generation must live under that idea that we always live as if the day of judgment can be upon us at any moment because it will come like a thief. And Jesus says it will come like a thief in the night. I think Peter understands, not thieves, they come all day. No, I'm just kidding. So we're not supposed to be like thieves, and we should not like thieves. But if you've ever been stolen from, then then you know the sense of vulnerability that, that it gives you. And thieves, they do not announce their coming. They are the only one who gets the vote of when and where and how. You can be prepared for them, and you certainly should. Lock your doors at home, in your cars, in your driveway, Put your things away if you don't want them stolen. Get an alarm if you, if you want, etc. But, but what Peter is getting at here is the inescapable reality that no one knows the day when Christ will return 
and will usher in the day of the Lord. No one knows. It could be in 30 minutes. It should be done by then. It could be tomorrow. It could be next year. It could be a thousand years from now. So this time of patience, brothers and sisters, is, is not indefinite. Patience is not indefinite in the sense that it's just going to allow this time to continue to go. He will come back, and when he comes, it will come as a surprise. However, when we are given, what we are given throughout the scriptures is what? Small puzzle pieces. Not so that we'll know when the thief comes, but will help us to be prepared when Christ comes. And that's what verse 10 is doing. And verse 10 is coming pretty loud and proud, isn't it? It's, it's coming as a, a pretty strong warning to us and to the world. Look how Peter describes this, this event. Because one thing for sure, we may not know when he comes, but what he says here in verse 10 is that everyone will know when he does come. He says three things. He gives us three pictures of this event. First, we are told that the heavens will pass away with a roar. That's why we know that everyone will know when he comes. And this, this roar has, a, has an implied idea of like a, if you were standing here and an arrow just kind of whizzes by your ear. By your ear. Or the whizzing and the crack of a bullet next to you. Or the, the sound of, a, of an explosion behind you. Or, or the, the roar of a fire as it cracks, as the wood is breaking, and as whatever scientifically why it cracks. We'll explain to us later. Or run. Isaiah describes it like this. He says, all the hosts of heaven shall rot away. And the skies will roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall. All leaves fall from the vine. The leaves falling from the fig tree. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The second picture he gives us is that the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved. Other translations use the word elements instead of heavenly bodies, and they're both referring to these, these basic blocks, these building blocks of which the, the earth and the universe has been made. Earth, air, fire, water, all of these things will be burnt up and dissolved. Now, we don't know exactly, of course, right, what, what these particular elements may be, but we do know that they're referring to the, the physical things of our world that our, that our world is made of. And what he is saying, that all of these things will be, will be burnt up in such a way that they will be dissolved. We know what dissolved means, right? Throw an Alka-Seltzer in some water, let it go, there's a little tablet, dissolved. Destroyed. It's gone. And the third picture is the earth and, its, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Interesting picture here at the end because the phrase will be exposed or, or will be laid bare or will be made found has just confounded scholars for, for centuries. And there's all kinds of views here. But what I believe what is being, say, is being said here is that when the world passes away, in the first two pictures that we understand what he's saying here, they'll be burnt up. Why? Because of the righteous, just, just, holy judgment of God upon the world. And then only man will be left to give an account of themselves before their creator. There will be no more scoffers scoffing on that day because everything will be exposed and laid bare. There's no one who can stand and scoff before God and accuse him. And when Christ return, the promise of the righteousness of God who will judge the ungodly we may not understand everything. But what we do know is that the day of the Lord is coming and will come. And when it does, it will be dramatic and catastrophic in its effect. The universe is not just going to be disrupted, but it will be destroyed. Ooh, look at that promise, huh? May give you chills. We'll save some good news for the next time we are back in first or second Peter. 
there is some good news. I think we can become very guilty of forgetting that the second coming of Christ in these terms. As certainly the world does not have this perspective. They live their lives as if nothing's happening. How much should we be pressing upon in our own hearts, in our own minds, the reality of this kind of judgment that is truly coming? J.A. Packer says in his Christian book, Knowing God, it's a classic, wonderful book. He says, do you believe in divine judgment? By which I mean, do you believe in a God who acts as our judge? Many, it seems, do not. Speak to them as God as father, friend, a helper, one who loves us despite all of our weaknesses and folly and sin, and their faces light up. You are on their wavelength at once. But speak to them of God as judge. And they frown and they shake their heads. Their minds recoil from such an idea. They find it repellent and unworthy. The very fact of this is that we should not. It also should not be a source for us to boast in, nor a place to to gloat in, but as a stern warning to be humble and to pray for, as much as we pray for Christ to come, we also pray for the gospel to go forth to the nations, to our city, to our state, to our country. And also we would share the gospel with every opportunity that we have. Beloved church, I think this text is encouraging us to not be weary in waiting for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray for it. Desire it. But remember that God is not like us. His timing is not our timing. Remember that God is patient toward us and that he will most certainly save his people. And remember by his word that there will be a day that no one knows that he will fulfill his promise fully and very much surprisingly. So I call upon you, church, this morning to endure in faithfulness to Jesus Christ until that day comes when although we know that the world will be judged and the heavens and the earth will be destroyed and the ungodly will be judged that Christ, our bridegroom, will stand there to receive his bride that has been beautified by the washing of his word. And we will stand there ready to be received by our groom. And so until then, we can rest assured, rest assured in our sovereign God, He will accomplish all things according to his will for his glory. And all of God's people say,